0: Hello, and welcome to the next episode of Lost and Criterion. I'm John Patrick Owatari Dorgan, and with me, as always, is a man who once trained a parrot to order for him at restaurants.
1: <laughs> I am the Adam Glass, And, uh, you know, once you become a Buddhist monk, it becomes much easier to train a parrot to say things. Uh, and, so, and
0: you being a Buddhist monk, that's, yeah. you know, you so, do it every day. Yeah.
1: I mean, an untrained group of soldiers takes weeks to train a parrot to say one phrase. But a trained Buddhist monk can send send the bird back uh, having learned a new phrase uh, overnight, really, ideally. Uh, I've gotten to the point through my advanced Buddhist studies that I can train a parrot uh, just by whispering toward it. They don't really have ears, so it's hard to whisper in a parrot's ear.
0: Do you think uh, that they don't have ears? Parrots? I mean, they have sound holes. Yes, but they're not ears. Like all birds. And, well, I mean— <laughs> I, okay, so this is an interesting topic. We, let's just not have the podcast. I personally, and I've had this conversation with other people. I interpret ear as the sound hole plus surrounding f- flesh. I it's just surrounding therefore flesh. anything with sound holes has ears. An ear, an ear in in this in this narrative,
1: this world that I'm building that you refuse to play in, an ear is uh, a protrusion. You have to be able okay. to see an ear.
0: So, what's the sound hole <laughs> called in this universe? Um,
1: where are they on a on a parrot's body? Side like of this, their head.
0: You sure? Side on their side of their yeah. Because they sure.
1: don't need to be right. I, so
0: yeah, but I was I, I remember. Okay, do you remember
1: uh, what was it I'm called? not actually the questioning nature, where? Of course, they're on the, the side the of the nature
0: head. <laughs> center in Mansfield. Do you remember? Oh yeah. yeah. Was it Glen? What was it called?
1: Blend something sounds right, but I can't
0: remember. Yeah. What it well, I remember going there in fourth grade, and they showed me the ear holes on a, on a bird. Yeah. The side of its head. It was freaky. They... They're like, you see that? I'm like, see what? The hole. I'm like, yeah, that's where it hears. Uh, <laughs> It's terrifying because it's just a, you know, like we don't really think of it that way, but it was just a cavity. Like yeah. it was just like... It looked like somebody just took a drill and drilled a hole in the side of a bird's head. Yeah. It was like, here's your ears, fucker. How did they, like,
1: on a live bird?
0: Yeah. Just you move the just, feathers it, aside? It, the, or... Yeah, you can just move the feathers aside and show it. That's why they don't need all the, the gunk, the, like, all the stuff, though, right? Because it's already protected by the layer of feathers yeah. anyway. Like, it doesn't need to have other protections because it's already got that. But, yeah, they just did it for us, and I was like, oh, wow. I'm so
1: glad that this conversation went this direction. Instead of me whispering
0: orders into a, into a parrot's head, <laughs> we had a, a bird talk. Had, this has been this has been bird hour. <laughs> Tune in next week for awkward dad. Uh, this has refrigals. been Pat traumatized by looking at birds' ears hour. They're freaky, man. They're freaky. <laughs> like like not in like a terrible way, like you know, but like in that way, like oh, it's just a hole. You just have a hole on the side of your head, and like of course, I logically know that I also have multiple holes in my face. Of course. Like we all do, but yeah. like to just see like a—that's
1: one way we're really like birds,
0: right? We all just have—we're all—we're all in the same hole in head having boat. Yes, really. The monster would be as if we ever encountered a creature that didn't have any holes anywhere. It's true. That's terrifying. Is, how does it eat? We just describe jellyfish. It's what we just described. Presumably, they still have some sort of mouth thing somewhere, right? I yeah I don't know i I know that they're you know I don't know i don't I don't know jellyfish are a mystery to me, yeah let's i let's... I feel like we should have five minutes on jellyfish every week. Let's not talk about jellyfish again this week. they freak me the fuck out.
1: So before we get into the movie this week, I do want to talk about our Patreon, patreon.com slash Lost in Criterion. Over there for just a dollar a month, you get access to a monthly bonus episode, and you get to vote (laughs) on what movie we're going to watch.
0: The opportunity to pay for your sweet jellyfish content.
1: (laughs) We do not noticeably talk about jellyfish more on the Patreons as of this moment, but maybe moving forward we will.
0: I might make it a priority, I'm not going to lie.
1: You're not going to remember by the time we're recording this episode. No, I will I months. probably will
0: remember this conversation by the time we finish recording this episode.
1: <laughs> uh, but yeah, we uh we watch non-criterion films over there one a month and like I said you get to vote. I put together a little list usually based on something we've watched recently or uh, suggestions from our supporters. Uh supporter Jason West uh suggested just uh, the last recording as of this episode's recording. Uh, he put together a list in celebration of the release of uh, the Godzilla box set, spy number 1000 in the Criterion Collection. Uh, he suggested we do a uh, survey of uh, of Godzilla films through the decades, and the one that won the vote was Godzilla, Mothra, and King Ghidorah uh, from 2001. Or, er- No. When did, what year did it come out? I think it was two thousand one
0: uh, uh, I think that's that sounds right I mean yeah. I don't have the page open, so I'm not really <laughs> right uh I mean, in it any right. case,
1: Jason then joined us for that episode and we had a had a delightful talk with him in one of our longer bonus episodes uh well over an hour and a half uh but good fun uh the question will yes. there
0: be an will there be a will there be a director's cut?
1: Oh no, I just released the director's cut explicitly oh yes, this yes, is the yes, hour forty five cut Gotcha. Already you went out.
0: you went full yeah. modern directory You're like nah i recorded 2 hours i'm going to fucking give you 2 hours right
1: right they aren't yormally that are nor- <laughs> yormally um, <laughs> <laughs> i
0: like I, i'm a big fan of this new word i i want to use yormally in my life
1: <laughs> they aren't normally that long they're normally just like a normal episode uh however there is there is one other episode that long and that is the uh the bonus episode from uh, a Few Decembers ago. Normally, I don't put one up on December because we have the Christmas episode. But for our supporters, something something fun for the December. Uh, I it's
0: truly beautiful.
1: Yeah, released uh, a a quote director's cut of our episode where our good friend Donovan Hill joins us to talk about Aliens, in which Donovan ended up talking for well, well forty five minutes. An hour of him talking an about hour that topic about. Uh, alien covenant uh which had recently come out at the time uh a movie we just pat neither pat nor i had seen so we could not question it uh but at the end of that hour it is revealed that donovan himself had not seen it
0: yeah it was uh, amazing it was the best was, thing that has ever funny. happened
1: so i had to put that out in its entirety as well and it is it is a very long
0: episode it, uh, let's be clear there's a decent chance that that will be the best thing that ever happens on this podcast like we'll never top that so
1: if you want to hear the best thing that's ever happened on this podcast give us a dollar a month and you go go hear those uh those older episodes and vote on the new ones the
0: reveal on that is so good it
1: was great we were just dumbfounded it was it was wonderful um (laughs) but yeah we watch a lot of different movies over there like i said aliens gmk We've uh, we've watched uh, the Americanization of Emily, and Monster Squad, and Critters 2, and Ernest Goes to Camp, and uh, Ready Player One, and just a wide variety of things, both good and bad. Uh, and we have fun, a lot of fun over there. Uh, and we try to get guests over there a yeah, little bit we more do. often than we, we normally do on the main podcast, too. It's a little easier to get guests once a month instead of once a week.
0: But uh, yeah, we basically... It's basically become the home of guests because we don't do it, <laughs> it on this main of, yeah. line podcast ever anymore. That's fair. Uh,
1: for a little extra over there, $5 a month, we'd like to thank those people on air. And a big thanks to Adam Speakerman for your continued $5 support. Just a little above that, we do something really special. Pat makes a piece of art based on one of the movies we've watched recently. I get that printed up on a postcard and write a little personal note to you to thank you and mail that off to you. Uh so if you like physical mail, bespoke art and uh general weirdness, $10 and yeah. above.
0: Yeah, that's basically that's a good description of yeah. everything that is yeah. that is the postcard system.
1: It's 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 really fun and Pat makes some really really great pieces and at least one incredibly frightening one that will live Yeah, in one my, that will steal your soul. nightmares.
0: will eat you alive inside. Uh, but
1: that is $10 and above and we also like to thank those people on Air. So thank you to Michael McGrath and Jason Haver for your continued support at that yeah, level. Yeah, thank you. And above it. This week, we are finishing off a duo of Kon Ichikawa films, uh, both dealing with uh, Japan during World War II, both very much anti-war films, both very bleak films, but now we watch the one that's maybe slightly less bleak.
0: Yeah, the, the lesser of the two. Yes. Bleak bleak wise.
1: This week we are talking about the Burmese harp from nineteen fifty-six. Now, uh Ichikawa himself remade this film in nineteen eighty-five, uh, on Color Stock with uh, obviously a new cast. Uh well, mostly a new cast. He actually had the same woman playing the old woman in the nineteen eighty-five version. <laughs> yeah. Um <clears throat> but yeah, this is the nineteen fifty-six original. Uh, we didn't mention last week, uh, but obviously, 1959, 1956. These are both films that probably should have been in color. Um,
0: well, I mean, Ichikawa makes it like yes. in his interview on this one. Was it this one or the next one? One of them he purposely chooses Eastman black and white. Right. Like, he demanded because he's like, no, black this can't be in color. Um, it was. It was that. It was this one. Fire on the plains, right?
1: I think fire on the plains. Uh, he insisted he that it needed to be black yeah. and white.
0: Yeah.
1: Here, uh, it was a want to be black and white, but he kind of more manipulated the system. Uh, the company, the company that released this, um, which was a uh, Nikatsu, uh, at the time their color productions used a camera. They they weren't using Eastman Kodak color film. Uh, the color film they were using was a was a japanese variety that required shooting each primary color on its own film strip yeah. so the camera needed to do that was huge and very heavy and ichikawa said to his production company i can't take this camera to burma and if it breaks down in burma no one's going to be able to fix it because everybody considered Burma a backwater at the time, apparently. Uh, so he he said, I can't use the color camera you want me to use. Let's just use a black and white camera. Right. Yeah. Uh, this film was originally released in two parts. Uh, part one on January 21st, 1956, and then part two on February 12th uh, in Japan. Oh, interesting. Uh, There is, I think, 20 to 30 minutes of footage that was excised in order to accommodate joining them into one movie. Uh, Interesting. I don't know that that film is lost, but I do know that Criterion does not include it on the DVD, and presumably if it were not lost, we would have seen it. It would be on the DVD, (laughs) yeah. We would see the Part 1, Part 2 division, and... The extra half hour. 27 minutes, I believe, actually. But, yeah. Uh, So, as far as I know, that 27 minutes is gone. I don't know what it could have been. Um, I am told, from what I've read, uh, Ichikawa was not incredibly happy about it being cut. Right. Um, And, presumably, they are things that existed in the script. So... Uh, He used the same script in the 1985 release, so perhaps then uh, the 1985 version of the film uh, contains that excised footage. That's Uh,
0: possible. The
1: uh, the 1985 film has a runtime of 2 hours and 13 minutes, uh, which is longer than this, but not
0: that much longer. Not 20 that 23 minutes longer
1: yeah um no it is it is 2 hours and 13 minutes is is the original Japanese runtime of 143 okay. um yeah that's yeah uh so if that's true uh it also works in conjunction with i think one of the interviews for the Burmese heart but it could have been uh last week's film um One of the people interviewed talks about how uh, Ichikawa filmed and how he would do the storyboards and write down how long he wanted the scene to take on the storyboard. And he was always, always on that. That's how he shot. He shot to get the acting to fit what he had already storyboarded. Uh, So, presumably... The 143 minute version also exists in the storyboards that he would have reused, or at least based his reuse of on for the 85 version. So I assume that the 85 version contains the other, <coughs> the longer version. Hmm. Uh, I'm also kind of surprised that the Criterion DVD did not contain the 1985 version, because uh, right. that also seems like a thing Criterion would do, but.
0: Yeah, I mean it seems it seems like they really just sort of, yeah, this doesn't I don't know what was on the actual DVD, but I mean, the only thing I had access to was two interviews and that was it.
1: Yeah, right, which is on the Criterion Channel. Um yeah, the the DVD contains those two interviews, contains the original theor- theatrical trailer uh and the essay by Tony Rands is what what uh hmm the DVD listing on Criterion's website says. So yeah, it's not, uh, it doesn't have a few things that you might think the Criterion collection would put on. Yeah. Uh, not that two other versions of this story, particularly the way Ishikawa films would have been necessarily interesting. I've never seen the 85 version yeah, me neither. uh But all things considered, it seems very much like it might be just shot for shot the same thing in color. Uh, right. I actually know that that's not true because I ended up watching the '85 version of the Home Sweet Home uh, musical sequence, where the where the uh, other soldiers, the yeah, the uh, Anglo Indian Australian troops come out. Uh, and that is shot a little bit differently. But, uh, but yeah. Um, I don't know what major changes could have been. I don't know what benefit Criterion would have given us watching both the other 1956 version and the 1985 version. But also, given what we have seen from other Criterion <laughs> releases, right. I'm still kind of surprised that it's not there.
0: Yeah, me too. Yeah.
1: But, yeah. As we said last week, this is the happier, <laughs> marginally.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, or at
1: least more sentimental anti-war film.
0: Yeah, I mean it's even even the phrase "sentimental" doesn't quite hit the nail on the head. Yeah, if you ask me, it's more that like it, it is more hopeful. Yeah, well, that's I mean, it presents a world where um, you know where you could escape the hell you've created. Yeah. But There's, not really, because you're just going to spend the rest of your life doing atonement for the for the hell you've created, right? Like yeah. it's hopeful in in the way that like joining a monastic order is hopeful. <laughs> right. You right. know, it's like, well, I mean, I'm going to be doing a thing. <laughs> like it's going to be a thing. Like I yeah. don't know. It's it's a little hard to describe because it it's not exactly like something that um, no, normal people would process as being like an extremely hopeful outcome, right? Right. Like I'm right. not going to die because I'm going to instead join a monastic order and do this job for the rest of my life.
1: So, so an interesting thing I think about this movie as an anti-war film. The so majority of anti-war films that we've seen, uh, they don't portray war because war is always exciting, right? It's hard to it's hard to have an actual. You know, yeah, we can argue we can argue that Full Metal Jacket or uh, even Platoon and certainly uh, Apocalypse Now are anti-war films. Right. But the, the general but reading of those, the people the people who love those movies and get really into those movies, aren't anti-war people.
0: Well, and you know we talked about this very briefly last last week yeah. in that like you're right because like we talked about how you can't show atrocities in movies as a way to teach people that atrocities are bad right because inevitably there'll be people who watch it and don't understand that what you're trying to tell them is this is shit dude right. don't do this right. Right. like you know it, it's just true right like I mean so what... go ahead sorry
1: the American way of doing an anti-war film is to still show action sequences and battles and whatever, and then tack on some sort of message about war being hell. Uh, And that's a lot of the European anti-war films that we've seen were about the camaraderie of man. And we get a little bit of that in this one, but that ultimately being we're all the same. There's no difference between me and the Germans. So why should I fight them is like the message of, uh, most of Renoir's anti-war films, right? Right. Yeah. Uh, Fires on the plane is something wholly different to either of those yes, concepts. Fires Absolutely. on the plane is this is the result of war. Look at it.
0: Yeah. It is.
1: It, it is holding uh, a dog's face up to its vomit. It is.
0: Right. Yeah. It's you're not allowed to blink. Yeah. Like you. Right. You need to look at this. You need to deal with what you've done. Right
1: right uh and deal with what will happen if you try to do this again
0: yeah if you keep doing this right. this will keep happening forever right
1: because this is the inevitable result this yeah. movie deals with that too in the pre- presentation of japanese war dead uh but you know our main character's ultimate thing is that he is going to stay here to bury the dead? Yes, and that is that is going to be how he atones for the war. Um, which is good and bad, in that it still ignores, or at least doesn't outright mention uh, war atrocities committed against the
0: Burmese, right? Right, and we and we talked about and that. We talked last about that last week too. Week. But here, uh, I, I have a, I have, I've been thinking about this because this, you know, not to sort of get too deep into things right from the beginning, but, um, you know, so one of the critiques of this is the fact that like this could even be read as being nationalistic, right? Like, oh, yeah. I have an obligation to my brothers in arms or something like that, um, and you know, fails to acknowledge a lot of that kind of stuff. But it, it's an interesting perspective because, um, well, there is a scene by, that
1: outright direct outright rejects that, right?
0: Right. Well, there's... Yeah, I, I'd be interested to see which one you think does, because I'm curious to see if we're on the same page. Well, that
1: right. outright rejects the, the obligation to your fellow soldiers. It's the, <laughs> it's definitely the scene in the cave where the where the captain oh. uh, convinces everybody that they need to die right. well, instead yeah, yeah, of I, surrendering. I, um,
0: I, I was yeah. thinking more... I thought we were talking about <laughs> like the nationalism of that, yeah. of that bury your brother sort of thing, right? Yeah. Oh, okay. Because yeah. it, an interesting thing from, happens... Down. When he is about to get on the boat with the other monk, or, you know, and the monk, the monk who is Burmese, points out that it is a shame that no one has ever buried all the bones of all the people who have died yeah. in this place. You, you know what I mean? Like, and it makes a reference, and that is a is an oblique reference to war atrocities for right. sure, right? But also the fact that like the Japanese are neither the first nor probably the last to do those sorts of things. Right. It's it it speaks to a like you you almost get this like really interesting perspective on the place through the eyes of this monk of like this is just the story of this right. place. Like he this says, is forever. He, yeah.
1: Burma is Burma. Burma is the Buddhist country, and he talks about how. The Burmese aren't involved here. You know, it's Japan Yeah,
0: it's just other people fighting wars in Burma. Yeah. Right.
1: Right. And that's you know there's obviously there's going to be a Burmese resistance in the same same way that there was a Philippine resistance in, in the right, movie last week. Yeah. Uh but in both instances it is outside forces fighting over this country more than it is this country itself. Japan. Japan invaded China, yes. But a lot of the other work was the claiming of land as a buffer zone once the war was was started. Right. Right. Yeah. Like the Philippines was was both the U.S. and Japan racing to collect islands throughout.
0: Yes. Yeah.
1: And and you know uh, maybe the U.S. didn't do it by invading and subjugating the people there. Uh, But they still did it at the at the point of a gun and showing up and saying, hey, we're going to build we're going to build a naval base here and you guys are going to let us.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And, and, you know, and and that's the thing, right? It's like, you know, it's it's hard to like these are always really difficult conversations to have. Yeah. Because, you know, you don't want to like, you know, you don't want to even come close to excusing these things. Right. 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 Uh, But like the reality of the matter is, is that like the main point i want to get at is the fact that like you know there's the, the thing about this you know being a this is a war between japan and 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 the british is, has nothing to do with us yeah uh kind of at thing but also there like there's that that there's just this like line it's like a one a one line where he's just like there are there are, you know it's a shame that there are you know the i forget the exact line but basically there's it is a shame that there are so many bones so many dead that have gone unburied like this sort of acknowledgement that um what he's going to endeavor to do is buddhist work you know what i mean like it's not like a it's no longer japanese work it is buddhist work like what he's going to do is a thing that is in holding with sort of what he's becoming not what he was right um, and i think that's really important because that i think even in that one line, Ichikawa is trying to explain to the audience that, like, no, the burying the dead has nothing to do with his nationalistic pride. Right. He's burying the dead because this this land is essentially covered in ghosts. Right. And needs to be free of that. Like, like, and and then, and, then, and you and if you think about it from the right direction, so long as there are dead Japanese people all over the fucking place in this country, it will never be free of what happened. Right. Like it? It can you can? How can you be free if every time you walk into the woods you just find a dead person wearing a Japanese uniform? You're not right. right. Like, whereas you have to deal you had to live with that, and it wasn't your fault to begin with, right? Like, if you're Burmese, you walk out into the woods, you find that, and that that you didn't make that happen, right? Right. You're just saddled with it.
1: Whereas last week's movie involves a character running f- from war or wandering away from war. Uh And then wanting redemption at the end and not getting it because he has done nothing to atone, this character who has run uh and has even stolen uh a monk's clothing in order to to better hi- better hide uh he uh at the same time you know there's a reason that the British promise safe passage. To him, right? It is because someone will be trying to kill him, and it is it is more than likely Burmese, uh, Burmese forces, right? That will be trying to kill him, and Burmese, Burmese locals who know what, as a Japanese man, what a eh, Japanese soldier, what has been done. Uh, so he has reason to self preservation reasons to steal, and is a selfish reason to steal, and then it becomes selfless because he is actually trying to redeem it. He is trying to put Burma back into a state before the Japanese invasion, and in particular, right. that does involve burying a lot of bodies and cleaning up a mess.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. And and, it is, and, you know, it is not right.
1: just the idea of burying bodies as, as it's not a kinship and a nationality thing. It is the base work of starting to rebuild Burma and actually repent.
0: Right. And you, know, and, you know, the movie does dig into sort of um, understandings of Buddhism and stuff like that, which kind of do unite, you know, these are, you know, we're talking about two Buddhist countries, you know, right. justify, like, arguably Buddhist countries. But two very you know, like different the, Buddhist countries, very, too. Very, right? absolutely. Well, like, very, very different. But the idea that there are certain, you know, you get into that, you do kind of get a little bit of that um european you know anti-war film thing a little bit yeah and it's like that sort of like you know instead of we're all people deep down inside you kind of get like well we're not that far you know what i mean like that there's there's a thing here that unites us sort of sort of right. a little bit that of that vibe there of like you you understand the basic tenets of this thing that we're all supposed to be doing and uh Kind of getting in touch with that, right? Like, right.
1: Uh,
0: and that's you know, because that, that speech at the end, that 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 is, is that that final thing is literally the tenets of Buddhism, right? Like, that is what is that paper that is, right? That whole last little speech is that, and that that's whole all it is. that that whole letter.
1: You know I love it so much. I I I, I want to read it. I want to. Okay,
0: go for As it. As I, I climbed cry Mount again, yeah.
1: As I climbed mountains and crossed streams, burying the bodies left in the grasses and streams, my heart was racked with questions. Why must the world suffer such misery? Why must there be such inexplicable pain? As the days passed, I came to understand. I realized that in the end, the answers were not for human beings to know, that our work is simply to ease the great suffering of the world, to have the courage to face suffering, Senselessness and irrationality without fear to find the strength to create peace by one's own example. I will undergo whatever training is necessary for this to become my unshakable conviction. That's beautiful. That's yeah. But yeah, it is. It but is. But it is the tenets of Buddhism. Yeah, it is but a that's, succinct that's understanding is, yeah. of the tenets of Buddhism, particularly. I I think particularly the tenets of Buddhism as practiced in Burma. Um,
0: yeah and and well and that's an interesting thing right like i who knows like how deep down the sort of religion uh rabbit hole um ichikawa was intending to go and stuff like that but uh, the reality of the matter is is like for example he uh, he leaves his family right like we find out that he has people back in japan that love him well you know a primary functional difference between Japanese Buddhism and uh, Buddhism as it's practiced in most of mainland mainland Asia is ja- uh, Buddhist monks in Japan are allowed to be married. They're allowed to have families. They're allowed to have. Uh, they're allowed to drink. They're allowed to own property. They're allowed to do a lot of things that Buddhist monks traditionally in most other cultures are not allowed to do. And he's choosing a Buddhist monk lifestyle that is. Like is like is practiced in Burma, not like as, as it yeah. is practiced in Japan, which is just an interesting thing. I again, I don't know how far down that rabbit hole guy was going. Well, I but think it's there, yeah.
1: That's sort of that sort of brotherhood of man thing, too. Is we both, and that's that's something that the European films definitely leaned heavy on is we both practice the same religion. We may do it a little differently, right. yeah. but we both practice the same religion, and that. When you're talking about the European theater as a vacuum, and uh, the South Asian theater as a vacuum, that works. But uh, but on a broader sense, your religious brethren, uh, we are talking about a Buddhist nation at war with a ostensibly Christian nation, ostensibly right. And sense. then and that mm-hmm. that that both problem them. is yeah. If, yeah. <laughs> so it does fall apart, and you need to have the wider overall brotherhoods, which is why the scene where they connect with the. Uh, Western forces is one where they connect through song, right?
0: Yeah, they connect. Well, they connect through through, it, through an English song, which which has Japanese lyrics. Yes, um, which is a very common thing. I mean, that's getting into like really like a a, a very fascinating part of Japanese culture. Uh, circa the right of the last you know twenty years or so after the Meiji Restoration. Yeah, like the influx of Western music almost exclusively reworded. Yeah. But also Western music Japanese styles. styles. Like words. that chorale yeah, singing absolutely. is not a traditional Japanese yeah, it's not thing. A traditional Japanese music. Yeah. Right. And, and, and it, well, it's it's just fascinating because like in that situation, right. The brotherhood that unites them is a thing that like got imported into Japan right. from overseas it is, a, is, is a, a weird thing.
1: Is the Japanese performing something that the British recognize as British
0: <laughs> right and and that and that's and if you think about that if you if you go too far into that like if you look a little bit too deep into that that's a weird thing right like ah yeah. oh, the way we can avoid being killed is to just make sure we blend in with these guys yeah. kind of thing right Well no uh,
1: but the Japanese don't start singing that as a way to
0: No they don't I and, right. I, and I and I recognize that it's right. just you know it, that's why I said if you go too deep down yeah. into it right like if you start reading too deeply into it you can end up with a weird reading there. Yeah. Uh they start singing it because that is a that song is a that in Japanese and also it it is one of the few ones where the meanings on both ends are pretty right. similar. Right. And uh, the idea that doesn't happen a lot. Uh, the idea that all of, of these soldiers
1: are just homesick. Is, is yeah, a uniting, it's all about, right, right.
0: and, like, the, I don't know much about the British one, and I had to do a lot of research about the, the Japanese one, but, like, I got curious and I did the research, and the Japanese one is, like, pretty sticky, sweet, like, oh, I long for home kind of yeah. voicing to it. Like, it's it's what it's supposed to make you, it's actually longing for an inn that you belong, like, that's what that means, That's yeah. it's the name of an inn uh but um i will tell you this the fascinating part about the japanese song is it makes direct reference to the idea that my friend that my friend the birds is a <laughs> literal phrase in it which i think in this movie is really fascinating i don't i can't imagine that's not on purpose like literally you know the second part is you know my friend the 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 bugs but the first one is my friend the bird or My Friend the Birds, because, you know, no plurals. but um, Which is just fascinating. Like, you know, it, yeah, it just says, as part of the things that make this inn like, so nostalgic for you, is that you're, you have your bird friends there. And then, you know, we have got the whole bird thing at the end. It, I don't know. Again, I can't imagine that that's not on purpose. Yeah. maybe Maybe it's a happy accident, but it's weirdly, like, prescient in this right
1: right um hmm. there are a lot of subtly interesting things going on in this movie oh yeah no, yeah. yeah for sure uh one thing that's very interesting the book was written by someone who'd never been to burma yes um
0: which is really fascinating. Which is
1: fascinating in its own right. But but within the book, apparently, uh, it is not until the very end of the narrative that we know what has happened to uh, our main character. And that okay. he's not the main character, right? He isn't. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, Mizushima is someone that the narrative is about. But it is the narrator talking about how they lost him and they can't find him, and they keep having these random encounters with this monk uh, and then at the end it's revealed that that he is the monk um, whereas here we get you know frequent flashbacks, we get the scene on the bridge, we watch twice from different points of view right right uh yeah. Kanichi, uh eh. <clears throat> Ichikawa is uh definitely leaving the text and leaving the text in very interesting ways, I think too. Like this movie would play out very differently. But also it's a visual medium, right? So we can't like we couldn't have them interacting with the with the monk and us just fail to realize that it's the same actor, right? I guess it's right, possible, yeah, I mean, that's but Yeah. <laughs> But it'd be a dare. yeah,
0: but I mean it would require like a lot of work, right? Because right. you'd have to make him not look. The- it'd be yeah. I it'd
1: guess we we'd do a flashback at the end where we finally see the monk's face. Uh.
0: I mean, it's yeah, it's definitely possible, but yeah, you know, choosing you know we we've seen in this and the last one that Ichika is just not afraid to take the text and just do what he right. wants to right. tell the story he wants to tell, and I, I in this situation I see that as a a. a beneficial skill like he's just like okay he's not he he wants it to turn out the way he wants it to turn out yeah uh did you watch the the bonus for this one the, the, the interview the interview yeah i was I watched both the interviews because they actually yeah. featured each other. i don't watch the interviews when it's right. some rando yeah <laughs> but if it's if some it's the British actual director and i watch yeah. them yeah uh yeah.
1: i was i was very ha- fascinated by uh Rentaro Mikuni's inter- portion of the interview. Uh, he's the one who plays the captain, uh, right. where he was talking about uh, he was in the he was in the army. Uh, uh, Ichikawa was not he was drafted. He was drafted and then didn't go to war. Claimed he had appendicitis. Claim he might have had appendicitis, but he told them he had appendicitis. They gave him an appendectomy. And, and then, then
0: never called him. And then never
1: called him again. <laughs>
0: um, well, but, you know, he also points out in that interview that, like, it was obvious. Like, this is the end of the war. Like, yeah, he, yeah. the way he talks about it, it's pretty, to a certain extent, you wonder if there's just a, a few people somewhere yeah. in the Japanese army who are just like, I'm not going to bother fucking right, right. calling people anymore. Like, <sighs> you have to wonder, Right. Yeah.
1: I think we would probably let the animator draw his pictures now. Uh maybe.
0: Right, exactly. Yeah, the guy who like immediately joined, him was like, "Oh, I have a pen or you know, he was immediately yeah. taken in. It was like, "I have been excited." It's like, "Well, let's not we'll just fucking leave this yeah. guy alone. Maybe it's just not even fucking worth but it." But also,
1: but also, just in case he's lying about the appendicitis, let's take We're his gonna appendix. We're going to take his fucking appendix. God <laughs> gonna... damn it. Like,
0: we need our pound of flesh on this. <laughs> yes.
1: Uh, not quite a pound, I don't think, but
0: no, well, I mean if he had appendicitis you never know. if it,
1: if he had if his appendix appendix was was one pound, then yes He'd be he had appendicitis. a dead dead man. yeah that's true <laughs> um anyway uh McCune talks uh, about his time uh in the army and how he's he was in the army for for two years and uh he uh he with a little bit of irony calls it on the job training about his bayonet drills in which he was at first made to kill animals, and then they practiced their bayonet on POWs.
0: Uh That's monstrous. Yeah. Well, uh, like, I want to... Like, here's the thing, right? Like, okay, like, I'm sorry to just derail this completely, yeah. but this is just where we are. Like, I want you to think about what he's saying there, though. Yeah. Okay? Like, I'm not tr- Like, he... As just a matter of course in this interview, brings up a very very serious war crime. Right. Okay. That was just part and parcel of his training. Right. He's not prompted to do it, like in like no one's like urging him to talk about the war crimes he committed. It's just a part of like this sort of his own personal journey is talking about right what he was made to do right. So reconcile as a as a thing to think about the fact that there is a huge movement again huge being a relative term in in the in Japan to like revise history and erase the war crimes right to pretend like they didn't exist because well we don't know that they happened we can't prove they happened like literally there are hundreds of interviews recorded interviews of just former soldiers just describing the war crimes yeah. that they were a part of right because somebody asked them like what happened during the war and they just told a story yeah and in that story is an atrocity right yeah. uh, that they were just a part of um is is fascinating to think like that that those things have to be reconciled in our universe that like that you could have all these things be out there and then still be like, I don't believe any of that happened. Yeah. Like that's like, that's like, well, that's George Soros playing for like an entire stadium full of people booing Trump levels of like self, uh, like self delusion. Right. Like that's crazy to just believe that like, Oh, it didn't what, like they just paid this random actor to tell this story. Yeah. Like yeah. it's a, it's a wild idea. Sorry, it's just a thing that bothers me. Whenever these kind of interviews, I encounter right. one of these interviews, it's like no one, like no one, knew he was going to talk about that, right? And uh, no one
1: necessarily just... asked him to talk about it. Yeah, I mean no we don't one know the background would, of the but... Inter- interview, but
0: right. I mean, I guess it's possible, but, but it his... seems unlikely. Yeah,
1: yeah. The interview with McCooney is very much like Fires on the Plane. It is just a a presentation of fact. In a documentary yeah, and, style, almost. And, you know. And, fires on the plane is pers- not a documentary, but is still a realistic depiction. And Makuni... Michoudi- and, and
0: keep in mind, presumably, if that's the sort we talked about Fire when Fires on the Plane, we talked about what would happen to a person. Yeah. What their life would be like when they got back from that right. nightmare. And presumably when you see these kind of interviews, that's what you're seeing. Right. You're seeing a person who is still Many, 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 many years later, has to keep talking about it because right. it, it, it's now just a part of their soul, right? Like it, the only way to sort of excise the demon is to just keep talking right. about it, right? And the
1: and the only way to redeem yourself from it is to make sure it never happens again.
0: Exactly, which means sharing it, right? right. Like uh, making sure that everybody knows that this is what happened,
1: right? Right. Yeah. It just, you know, very rarely do I watch something where someone just casually talks about a war crime. Not that it was casual, even. Like, you know, it's, it's, no, no, but, casual is but the wrong way it to comes,
0: put that uh, Where it comes up in a conversation, right? Yeah. Like where it's, yeah. you know, you asked me about my experiences. Well, here you go. Yeah. Um, and, and I think it's really fascinating because, um, yeah, I mean, like to get again, we get and, and I think it's it's brought up th- this movie brought it up as a as a thinking point, but like how a, much of a disservice it is to the people the, to the those people to try to pretend like the thing they're telling you didn't happen, right? Right? Like to tell somebody who has this thing inside of them now that oh, you're just full of shit. Like is a is a is a wildly right, astonishing, like, as a society, disrespectful thing to do, right? And that's uh, – it's also an interesting
1: balance because, you know, for, for the critiques of Fires on the Plane in particular, and maybe even there's some amount of that critique here, that these are movies that portray the Japanese soldiers as victims of war. They're starved out. They're – and particularly with oh, Fires on the Plane. Uh, in both instances of these movies, the Americans and the British, they're portrayed as at least compassionate in how they mm-hmm. like the yeah. Americans in the last movie stop the Filipino woman uh, from uh, from murdering more people or exacting her revenge on more people. She kills one soldier is trying to uh, to surrender and they wrestle the gun out of her hand. And in that movie, uh, Americans are said to, uh, respect POWs and that if you turn yourself into the Americans, they'll say, oh, you fought very well. And then they'll fill you up with corned beef. And that is, you know, the, the British forces in this movie, you know, they, they, the war is over. We're going to get you back to Japan safely. Uh, you're going to need to do us a favor on the way, uh, Rebuild a couple of bridges, you know uh try and convince other soldiers to lay down their arms because they're not surrendering, but you're gonna get home, and we're gonna protect you until you get home uh and you're not even like like the work duty that these guys are doing, yeah, it's hard work, but it's not like they've got one soldier watching them, right right, yeah yeah <laughs> who who. Who frequently has to run after them as they think they hear their oh, voice. Right, who
0: whose primary job seems to be just to admonish them. Yes. Right uh, and now of course this is a this is a story, right? right. Like, I mean, this and that is, is a whitewashing that
1: is, like a, that is a whitewashing of of things that Americans and British soldiers did in the war and, and how we treated POWs, but it is meant also as a further admonishment of the way Japan operated. Right.
0: Absolutely. And, yeah. I mean, and that's why we get into the fact that like when we say that this movie is not concerned with anybody except for the Japanese, it means all the way down. Like, right. In as much as like all the all the people who are not Japanese in this film are seem like pretty decent, swell folks. Right. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like and I think that's an important point. Right. Because like, yeah, we're not we're not talking about atrocities and war crimes, but we're also making it very clear who the bad guys are right to a certain extent right and 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 this movie especially of the two lacks right negative people right like this movie doesn't have a lot of bad people we we get them earlier on right when right. about like with especially with the the sort of die hard and even uh military officer you know, in the in the caves but the the british officer
1: gives our main character a half hour to convince the uh, hold up soldiers, the hold up unit, to surrender. That that surrender has taken place, um, and that they need to lay down their arms and go home and rebuild Japan. Uh but he only gives them a half hour, and bombing's going to going to start again, and does start again when that half hour's over, right? Right, and you know there is. From my moral framework, that is a you have that the British are doing a bad thing there by restarting the bomb.
0: Yeah, I agree.
1: Yeah, uh, but you know, maybe it, maybe it's only a cursory understanding of of karma and Buddhist understandings of the world, but uh, these are men who have to be stopped and have chosen their own fate, right? Too. Right, yeah, so, I mean, yeah. It, there's an yeah, argument yeah. to be made that that even within a Western just war context that, you know, I don't agree with either, uh, the British are doing the right thing to stop these guys. Uh, but honestly, they could have just w- waited and, and held out and, like, laid siege to them for another week and...
0: Well, and, and that's really, yeah like these <laughs> yeah. the japanese in this environment, are it's very important are are not in a position of aggressors in the sense that they they can't do anything right. against the british right like the british could literally just stand far enough away right that they can't be shot right and they're not like, even
1: yeah eventually these guys if they don't run out of food they're going to run out of bullets so like something's got to give if you wait long enough
0: uh, right, exactly. But yeah, instead, they so, force the I mean,
1: issue, and enforcing the issue, uh, a lot of people die.
0: Right, and that, and 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 you know, and I don't think that's the. It's not the end of the world in the sense that, like, you know, it's it's not. It would be bad if this movie pretended like British soldiers just didn't even fight a war. You know what I mean? Like, there, it is important to acknowledge that, like. People die in wars like that is a thing that happens right and that that is the outcome of war right um is an important thing to have in your movie about the evils of war right um and, and you know he forces the 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 British person forces the issue and and didn't need to make the time frame that short and all that stuff um yeah and but you know at the same time we're we're putting a fun position as the audience because. We find out that it wouldn't matter how much time he had. Right, it just wouldn't have mattered. Right, like we know they that could have, the British soldier could have given him a day, two days.
1: Those a month. guys are not
0: surrendering. Right. They are diehards in the in the most literal sense of that word. Right, um, they are not going to surrender. And and that's keep in mind, Ichikawa is referencing a very specific thing that happened at the end of World War II. Right. Different types of soldiers, Japanese soldiers, specifically whether depending on how they entered the war, whether or not they were uh uh conscripts or or volunteers and and a lot of other things like that had there were many people who had die hard views of the war, which is like we're gonna fight like japan surrendering doesn't mean anything like that was a thing like there they there were there was a time period after the war ended where that they still had to clear, people still had to clear islands of soldiers right. who refuses to surrender. Yeah. I mean, there's there's a wild story of, like, some dude, I forget the exact details of it because I read it and I was like, well, that's wild. But some dude they found in, like, the 70s. Yeah. On one of the small islands in Okinawa. It was, like, still fighting the war. And
1: stories like that exist in every war. Right. Absolutely. And in folklore of of all sorts of countries who have been at war. It's
0: easier to have when it's a bunch of islands. It just is. And
1: even American media uh, post-war. This, I mean, those guys refusing to surrender and refusing to believe that they're being asked to back down is the baseline narrative of Failsafe and uh, uh, Dr. Strangelove, right? Right that absolutely is that one guy who is who's been conditioned that war is the only thing he needs to care about and will not be convinced even by even by the president himself telling him no no come back
0: right well absolutely yeah, yeah. and that and that's the thing right is it like that's that's what when you know that's part of the comment that each guy was making right? right is it like we trained people to be this thing. Right. We purposely made human beings into this. So, you know, we reap what we sow, right? In right. In the sense that, like, we're, you built a bunch of people who will always believe war is the right answer. Uh, and that you should never give up and never surrender. And that's what you, you know, I, that's, we talked in the last episode about things we had to, you know, things I may or may not have had to explain to my children while yeah. we watched this movie. And that was one of them. Right. Was that... That whole scene was baffling to him because he couldn't process why why he wouldn't listen to any of the good things guy. were happening yeah. and i and I had to explain that like the, the you know wh- you know the way that soldiers were made for this war involved in do- you know being taught since they were children that this is what they had to do. To be good to, you know, and, you know, I had to couch it in, like, you know, child terms and stuff, but, like, to be good for the people of Japan was to fight and die rather than, you know, and I had explained the contrast between him, between those soldiers and what, um, you know, the other soldiers had decided, which is the best way to help Japan was to go back, surrender and go back and fix, you know, rebuild Japan and, like, you know, try to help. And it's just an interesting conversation because. You know, I had to provide an an intense level of context, and not. And the interesting thing is, like, it's not an intense level of context for, for example, what uh, you know, what's happening in sort of the main line of the story of the film. That all kind of just makes sense. Right. It's this. It's all the extra stuff that like is fundamentally incomprehensible, right? Without context, like. Why don't they just surrender? Like, well, you know, okay. Now we have to have a talk about this, right?
1: Right. Um, and how deep do you take that talk? Because these are guys who, if the emperor himself had shown up and say, "Hey, the war's over," still would have thought it their well, duty that, to and fight that and die. Legitimately, did happen. Right. Like, that's a thing that right. happened. Right.
0: Like, I mean, because the emperor did make an that there was an announcement, and people refused to to agree to it i mean it wasn't there you know but keep in mind we all the other direction we had to go on that is we had to be very careful because that was also one of the bullshit justifications for the bomb right was that like oh they'll never surrender they'll never buy into the idea that the war is over and for the most part that wasn't true with or without the bomb it was pretty it's pretty widely acknowledged now that Japan was on the verge of surrender, with or without right. the atomic bomb, but and was... and
1: the far right people who were against surrender then and are the ones behind uh, <clears throat> political movements to uh, to claim there were no war crimes, uh, et cetera, and push Japan to to a war, an ability to to commit war. I mean, it's it's
0: reasonable to call it a war footing. I mean, yeah. that's the goal, right? Yeah. Is to be able to. Be that kind of country. Again.
1: They have always they have always existed, but we can't we can't justify the bomb by the feelings of what is ultimately a minority, a vocal minority, but a vocal right uh, and, a minority. and
0: a minority that keep in mind at 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 points in the history of the country have taken control. Yeah, like that's an important thing to keep in mind. Is like they were a minority when they took over, right? At that you know at that time period, and they led Japan into a disastrous nightmare war, like. That's what happened, uh, so you know that's a important thing to keep in mind. That like that, but you know the best way to deal with that group is not to, you know, avoid the issue, yeah. right?
1: Uh, the criterion essay for this one uh, is uh, by a guy named Tony Rains, and uh, and he actually, in sort of talking about that, brings up a kind of a, a an interesting little story. Um, he says, uh, you know, there was some right-wing resistance in Tokyo before the U.S. occupation forces arrived, Uh, ritual suicides on the forecourt of the Imperial Residence, a leaflet campaign urging a continuation of the war, and at least one violent skirmish between fanatics and the police. Uh, And the idea of police quelling a pro-war protest uh, is just one of the great ironies of Oh yeah, no. <laughs> but...
0: Yeah, it well, and you know, I mean the, the politics of that era of Japan's history is yeah. are really I I are underserved yeah. in
1: um And obviously those protests were happening because the majority the uh the diet and the emperor himself were all like, "No, war's over. We're done." <laughs> we're
0: Right, exactly. We're getting it's out like of that, this. That, that statement right. is made. That statement is made. Like the yeah. rules are the rules, right? Yeah. Um, and you know, it's 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 fascinating because you know those groups basically got you know led Japan into that, and then and that's you know there's a re- we've talked about this in the past, but you know the, you can find a fairly good number of articles discussing the fact that um, the sort of intense level of sort of national shame, yeah that came with not not related to losing the war but with getting into it at all and the fact that being a un, in a very different experience than what America went through at the end of the war obviously right the idea that like being a, having been a soldier was a shameful act there are no there are no there are now shrines as we we've talked about and they're all have always been they're not all, not have always been but at, after you know basically around the time of like uh like you know the the roar with uh, the Japanese Russo War there were shrine the idea that we had to enshrine the war dead was a was a thing that was yeah brought into practice but um but like you know the idea that being a war you know a soldier was a was a shameful act that you would basically never talk about again or if not if not not talk about it at least not talk about it with po- in positive terms right like right. the idea that that there was a kind of belief and 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 that continues to this day to a certain extent that like the the warmongers got us into this and we should be wary of the people who like yeah. make soldiers to be a thing that are is are, right
1: and post-war japan certainly the there point. were there were a, you know, returning soldiers as a as a shamed underclass is a thing that existed right, in post-war japan. Yeah.
0: And, we, and we've talked about that a little yeah. bit The i mean and then what you see now is that one of the ways to get around that is the thing that has happened before and and is they start ta- you know those groups start tapping into that sort of shared cultural history of the samurai as a as a noble warrior class which is how which is how the sort of the whole framework of the the imperial japanese army was built around was like recontextualizing the samurai despite the fact that keep in mind the meiji restoration was about taking the samurai out of power yeah okay was directly what it was about yeah and then almost immediately turning around and recontextualizing them and understanding trying to understand them as noble warriors as a thing to aspire to. Like, you know, building that classic thing that, you know, societies do where it's like, well, there, there were the bad ones and they're the ones that we got rid of during the major restoration. And then there were the good ones who fought hard and were loyal and, and then sort of reinventing what their characteristics were to make them match a modern fighting army. right? Um, and then we see that again in modern Japan, we see that that behavior happening. You know, the you know TV is jam packed with samurai all the time. Yeah, and and almost exclusively, what those stories are telling is uh, the idea that that is a noble fighting force that like was is good for a country to have. And you know, you you do get it couched in different terms now because the the. That you know that classic Japanese imperial army is not going to work, so it's got to be a slightly different view. It's it's more they they try to put in a little bit more of a internationalism, you know, globalism zest to it to make it seem like well, you know, oh, we also like you know we, to to kind of build on that idea that like oh we need that we got to get out there to help people right with our guns. <laughs> uh, is a sort of vibe that you get now to a certain extent, but it's still there and uh yeah i don't know it's just it's sort of a cycle right yeah and, uh, yeah yeah <laughs> i did it again though i got real off track and i can't remember where i was going with it so there you go <laughs> this happens a lot nowadays nothing to well worry we, about. we're really in we're in we're real deep into my shit right now when and, we uh Let's watch a French film, and I'll 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 I won't do this as much. When we
1: finally get to the Godzilla box set, and both of us are in early stages of senility. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm sure. Lost in Criterion will will take a great oh, fun God, turn. It's be a mess.
0: Yeah, it's gonna be. It's gonna. Yeah, we'll we'll probably have to rebrand it. I'll get my kids to like kind of work on work with us to rebrand it as like <laughs> listen to these old farts like get lost in their thoughts
1: right right uh the title will always be appropriate no matter what yeah i know yeah happens. it's actually
0: so... let's be honest more appropriate
1: yeah
0: uh, it's already appropriate but somehow it will get more appropriate
1: this is yeah both of these movies have been amazing there. Yeah,
0: no, I'm I'm so glad we watched these. I mean it's it's upsetting, but like yeah, I essentially have a box I mean, I'm gonna have to make my kids watch these again. Yeah. Well, one of them for the first time. Because that, <laughs> yes. That Fire on the plane is a bit too much for either of my children right now. Like I that's yeah. I made a good choice in not showing that to them. But um I had a decent idea of what um uh Burmese Harp was. I was like, "This is going to be okay. Like, we can watch this." Yeah, and uh, I was not disappointed. But you know, how he's going to deal with it, how they're going to deal with it when they're five years older, ten years older, is going to be different. And I think it's this is going to have to become part of some sort of weird family ritual. <laughs> there you go. I guess. Oh, Bill but Lake. you know, the, yeah. There's there's other movies that fit into this wheelhouse. There's there's a sort of this is a this is a not highly well-represented genre of Japanese film, but there is a genre which is the post-war dealing with what we did. Right. Films.
1: Right. And we have certainly had anti-war Japanese films before.
0: Absolutely, yeah. Um, these are probably the most intensely anti we've These are we even the
1: most intensely anti-war films we've watched, period.
0: Absolutely, like, yeah. Even, I mean, even
1: counting actual documentaries.
0: Like... Right. Yeah. I, I mean, I would say that probably the closest we ever got was probably Hearts and Minds.
1: Yeah, but Hearts and Minds even is is not the same level of intensity as Fires
0: of. No, Plane. it's not. But it's it's the closest. I mean, but it is the closest. It, it is the closest. Yeah.
1: Yeah, these are yeah they're just phenomenal movies, Uh But I think I think we can draw this to a close.
0: Yeah, I am yeah, I'm yeah. We've fine. been
1: talking about the Burmese Harp this week and Fires on the Plane last week, um uh, nineteen fifty six and nineteen fifty nine, respectively, uh directed by Kon Ichikawa. Uh both written by his wife, um adapting novels. Ichikawa sort of became known as an adapter of other media. Um and uh Actually, I told you, I told you before we started recording this morning that I discovered that one of the adaptations he did between these two movies uh, was from one of the anti-teen novels of, uh, oh goodness, I'm forgetting his name now, uh, Shintaro Ishihara. You know, we already okay. saw one movie adapted from from one of his, right? But, uh, but yeah, the. Uh, so basically, he would just do whatever work was presented to him. It seems like sometimes. well, I mean,
0: he's a Japanese but, director, right? Like, yeah, I mean, that's, he is a workhorse Japanese right?
1: director. I think he made four other movies in 1956. So,
0: yeah, like,
1: yeah, the filming schedule on this was 40 days. So,
0: and he and he actively described that in the interview as normal, right? Right. He made
1: a lot of movies which was the average year. for the time. So, he says. So yeah. Um, he did a lot it would be interesting to see uh to see that adaptation um punishment room is what it's called just understanding what he's doing ideologically at the time uh to handle a book that in our experience uh is written from an incredibly anti young people uh right spot <laughs> place um by a very conservative uh author uh it would be yeah um i don't know i'm betting either either he excises a lot uh to the point where it's unrecognizable or he's faithful to it and still very interesting but it's you know it's like suzuki adapting anything also right Right. yeah you never know what's gonna never know what's gonna happen because because on the one hand they are interesting out there guys with with uh deep ideas about what they want to do and what, what the art they want to portray, but also the workhorse directors who right, are making. You just
0: have to make whatever yeah. movie comes down the pipe, right? right? Yeah, and then, you know, every so often, you get Tokyo Olympia where it's like... It's like <laughs> I love just, Tokyo yeah, Olympiad so much. That's what he did. Yeah, I mean, I, I fucking love it. Yeah. It's hard as shit to buy, but, like... Right. Well, that's the weird thing. It's easy as hell to buy in Japan. I can buy it for, like, $15, but it's all in Japanese, and, like, I'm right. just not going to get the same... <laughs> I, I want I want the subtitles that go with that because yeah. they're just amazing to watch. Uh, so you know, I don't have two hundred dollars to buy the English subtitle Tokyo Olympiad.
1: Uh, next week we uh, will be leaving Japan after after three weeks in Japan, and we'll be watching Jules Dawson's The Naked City, um, a classic noir. It's uh we're we're in an interesting spot of the criteria collection where it's showing us very interesting things we've never heard of and then regrounding us in some sort of classics of cinema once a month. So, right, so we yeah. had the Bicycle Thieves a month ago and now the Naked City.
0: Well, and you you keep getting into this thing where you're like, wait, why wasn't that earlier? Like, right, why right. did we? Why are we at spine three hundred and seventy something? And your nest now showing me Bicycle Thieves, right? or
1: The Naked City, or why, something like that. Why did we watch Armageddon five years ago? <laughs> and we're just yeah, now yeah, exactly. Watching it's a really
0: weird years. universe we're, we're in here. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah. The the the, cri- the way we're doing the Criterion Collection is is a fun way to do it because it just doesn't make any fucking sense. Right. There's no rhyme or reason to this. But it is. Uh, it's how they uh, gave them to us. Yeah,
1: and I'm well. I'm gone. I'm I'm here for it. Yeah. So thank you once again for listening to Lost in Criterion. I am, as always, the Adam Glass. And with me, as always, John Patrick Horitari-Dorgan. And we'll see you next time. You've been listening to Lost in Criterion, hosted by John Patrick O'Atari dorgan and the Adam Glass, who edits it. We're a production of with2brains.com. Jonathan Hape does the music. Check him out at jonathanhape.bandcamp.com. And hey, if you like us, why don't you give us a review on iTunes, like us on Facebook, and support us on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash Lost in Criterion. We'd appreciate it.